0: I wish I could sing like that boy. I don't know about you all, but come Monday morning, I'm going over to Carl and Brenda's <laughs> because I want to see them birds read the paper and drink coffee. <laughs> it's always a right wise crack, Carl. I'm sorry I did it to you, but I'm, I'm glad I got to do it. <laughs> I don't get a I don't get a wise crack very often. Well, I don't get it right, at least very often. Okay, I'm very happy you all are here with us this morning. I hope the things we talk about will be beneficial. Uh, I've been, uh, the last few weeks, been trying to uh, embolden your faith, and today's no different. I want to continue on that train of thought. Last week, we talked about God with us, and I used Hebrews 13, 5, and 6 as one of my proof texts. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Each one of us have the ability to not only say that, but to believe that it's true. But I know it's hard to believe it's true. There's so many people in the world, so many people that God looks after. And we can't grasp how God can be with everybody at the same time. Well, that's one of the problems we deal with when we think about God. God is beyond our ability to comprehend. He's a, he, he's a being that we cannot imagine. We'll put everybody in a body. We put God in a body. And we limit him by the arms and the legs of a body. But God is a spirit. He's not a body. And he is capable of doing things just absolutely beyond our comprehension. Will we ever really understand it? I don't think so. But we can believe it. We can trust it. Because there are various examples throughout the Bible that demonstrates to us that this is really the case. Well, exactly what does God do for us? He's with us. What does he do? I want to talk about this for a few moments this morning. Uh, Does he work in our lives? Uh, There's different beliefs people have. One of them is called deism. This is a belief uh, some people entertain. Uh, They believe that there is God. But uh, they believe that God has nothing to do with us. It's, it's, it's kind of like God wound up the world, like an alarm clock. He wound up the world and everything in it and just let it run. And he sat back in a chair having nothing to do with his creation and it will run its course. And one day it'll wind down and come to a conclusion. This is a belief known as deism. It's, it's held by some people. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, for example a lot of uh, intelligent people are deists and some who are not so intelligent. Then there's the, the group, they believe uh, that God works through supernatural signs today. We see them on the TV all the time, or I do, I scan the channels a lot, uh, where they'll heal people at a healing service, uh, lay their hands on somebody, pray for them, and a the person, uh, who could not walk will get up and walk. A person who had cancer, cancer will be taken away. You know, uh, there's not a single bona fide example of a person who's ever been healed that way. I know there are a lot of testimonies that people have been, but there is nothing on record where someone has been healed in such a fantastic way. Well, this happened in the first century. Didn't Christ and others uh, heal people? Yes, he did. Uh, there was a reason for that healing. And they healed people when it was required. But there was a reason for it. Uh, in in the book of Mark, for example, chapter 16, verse 20, I don't have time to read Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, but Mark 16, and verse 20 Uh, the statement is made that they, the apostles, that is, the apostles went out and they preached everywhere. You know, that was the work of the apostles, preaching. Okay, not healing, but preaching. That was their job. That's what they were told to do. The Lord said, make disciples. And you make disciples by preaching and by baptizing them into Christ. That was their mission, in the great commission was to make disciples through the preaching of the gospel. Well, what about the miracles? Well, look at the rest of the statement. The Lord was working with them. He was right there with them the whole way. And he confirmed their words. When the apostles would stand up and speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, The Lord was there working with them, enabling them to to prove or demonstrate that the words they were speaking came from God indeed. How exactly did God do that? Well, he did it through the accompanying signs. He enabled them to perform miracles and such things. A man comes in, he said, I'm speaking for God, and here's what God wants you to do. And everybody's sitting there looking kind of cross-eyed and they think, well, who are you to speak for God? Prove to us that you speak for God. That'd be my first question. Well, the way they would prove it was through the signs that they worked. So the signs existed at that time because there was no other way to prove or demonstrate. There was no evidence attestating to the fact that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. So these signs were used. Today they're not used, why? Because we have the evidence. The evidence is in the form of the written word of God. I can speak, you can read the Bible, and you can know, you can tell if I'm telling you the truth or not. You are intelligent people. You are right-thinking people. You're rational. You have the ability to process thoughts. You don't necessarily need me to reveal anything to you, but you do want to confirm that the things that I'm saying are in fact the Word of God. Therefore, I don't have to use a sign to prove that I'm telling you the truth. You can use your Bible and know that the truth is either taught or not taught. This is something that we are to do in saving ourselves or working out our own salvation. The supernatural signs, they did exist. They existed for a season. And then when the New Testament was recorded on paper, they kind of dissipated, they went away. The last person that had the ability to work miraculous signs would have been John the Apostle. And in his final writings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation, he never makes mention of any gifts. Most Bible scholars believe that those gifts passed from existence or from usage by the year 70 A.D. After that time, there were none. And there probably weren't a great deal before then. There was a time when they were very visible. Christianity was a very new religion. But once they became established and was here to stay, the signs, what Paul says, the signs were child's play. You put away childish toys when you become an adult. When the church became an adult, child toys were put away, put aside. So the idea of supernatural signs today, demonstrating, proving that God is with us, no, no, that's not evidence. Uh, I can't work a miraculous sign. I've never been able to. If I could, that sick list we got this morning, it wouldn't have been there. All I'd have to do is go heal those folks. But I can't do it. Nobody else can do it either. That's why we call doctors instead of preachers. Then finally, there is divine providence. and That's what I want to talk about for a few moments. Providence. Oh, my, I love providence. I love to study divine providence. It's my most fun thing of all in the scriptures. It just thrills my soul to watch how the Lord prophesies something and then brings it to pass. It is amazing and with amazing accuracy. And it just absolutely blows my mind. Sometimes I just can't hardly sit still. Providence is from the Latin word providentia. It means foresight, uh, the ability to see before. God transcends time. That's one of those hard things about God to understand. He transcends time. You and I have to wait for events to unfold. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon until this afternoon. We have to experience it to know. God does not. God said he could see the end from the beginning. When God said in the beginning, let there be light, He could see the time that would come when he would put that light out. There's nothing unknown to God. He knows all things. Everything is before him. And that's good because that means that God knows what my tomorrow holds. He knows what your tomorrow holds. And if there's something not good for us in our tomorrow, the Lord can do something to make it go away. How does he do that? He he does that through providence. He can manipulate things working through the laws he's established in the world. Divine providence has to do with three things. Number one, the creator's maintenance and balance of the natural world. Uh, Jesus uh, upholds all things, the Hebrews author said, by the word of his power in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He makes the world go round. It's not love, it's Jesus Christ. He makes things happen in the world that keeps us our heads above water so to speak. Number two, we think about providence, it has to do with the fulfillment of divine purposes regulating international affairs. In other words, God can raise a king or he can lower a king. God can build an army or he can destroy an army. God can defeat this man and let this man be victorious. God can do whatever he wants to do. How does he do it? He does it providentially. You can't see him do it. You won't know he did it. But you'll wonder, was this the providence of God? When I studied American history, I thought about the United States going up the most powerful, against the most powerful nation on the earth. And it it seemed so weird. When the United States, the Americans I should say, When they went to war against Great Britain, do you know that only a third of the population was actually involved in the revolution? One third of the American population did not want to do battle with England, and they did not. They wore red coats. Another third of the American population didn't want anything to do with it. They wanted to live out in the wilderness and let everybody just leave them alone. There was only a third of the American people that actually engaged in the Revolutionary War. And they did the impossible, they won. Now I don't know for certain, but in my soul I believe with all my heart that the Lord was involved with the establishment of the United States of America, a land of religious freedom, a land where people could come, and they did, from all over the world To get out from under the Church of England and worship God the way they believe they ought to. Can I prove that God was the guiding hand? I can't prove it. But I believe it. Insurmountable odds were overcome in that process. And then finally, there's God's special operation in the lives of us. You and me. Those who seek to do his will, he watches out for us. He knows our tomorrow. That doesn't mean we're going to be free from any type of suffering. Sometimes suffering is good for us. And when we got good suffering waiting for us tomorrow, we're probably going to have to live to it. But sometimes there may be suffering that waits in our tomorrow that we have no knowledge of whatsoever. But God does. And he can make that go away. He can make that not be a problem. Well, I've never known God to take problems out of my future. That's because if the Lord did, you'd never know it. That's something he does. That's an obstacle he removes. And because it wasn't our obstacle, it's something we were never aware of. But people of faith know that the Lord works that way. They know that they belong to God, and they believe and they trust with their heart by faith that God does the very same thing for them. And in it, they rejoice. Think of it this way when you're thinking about providence. God has certain laws that governs our world. Okay, the law of gravity, okay? It rains so we don't dry up like a prune and blow away. Rain happens. God has laws that govern our world. And if you break his law, you're going to have to pay the penalty for that act. If you climb up on top of this church house and you jump off of it and you hit the ground, the law of gravity, God's law of gravity, not Mother Nature. There is no Mother Nature. It's Father God. God's law of gravity slams us to the ground. We know we're not supposed to do that, but if we violate the divine law, we gotta pay the piper. Now, we see that in the literal world. Same thing is true in the spiritual world. There are laws regulating our spiritual behavior. And the same thing is true. When we violate those laws, there's gonna be a penalty that comes along with it. And ultimately, the wages of sin are eternal death, Romans chapter six and verse 23. Everything is, fits together so nicely. Well, think about the laws that God has in place that governs the earth. Uh, sometimes the Lord, he went around those laws. He didn't go through them. He went around them. We call those miracles. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, he overcame the laws of the natural order. He pushed the law out of the way, and he did what he wanted to do. It was his law. He could usurp it if he chose to, and he did sometimes. But then there's another way that the Lord works through his laws. He goes right through, and he manipulates the very laws that are in place. He doesn't violate the laws, but he uses those laws and his knowledge of people and the way people think. He uses all that information that he has at his fingertips and he makes things happen that he wants to happen. If he wanted a nation such as the United States to come into existence, it wouldn't be hard for the Lord to make such a thing happen. After all, he's God. He created the heavens and the earth in six days. There's nothing that he would want to do that he can't do. Nobody can stop him. No power is greater than him and he works in your life and my life every single day of our life just like the hebrews author said he would he is always with us think about a miracle you have the birth of jesus christ what happened in matthew 1 18-25 and luke 1 verse 30 and so forth now the birth of jesus christ was as follows after his mother mary was betrothed to joseph Let's call it super engaged. It's like an engagement, but it's supersized. If you wanted to get out of the betrothal situation, you actually had to get a divorce. That's how forceful this thing was. You weren't married. You couldn't live together. But you were united just as though you were married. Oh, it was so strict. It's called betrothal. His mother was betrothed to a man named Joseph, And before they came together as husband and wife, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Ah, Joseph was devastated. His fiance had been with another man. And then he was told by the angel of heaven that it's not a man. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. Well, hey, things don't happen that way. No, they don't. No, they haven't once. And it's called a miracle. The birth of Jesus was a miracle. But let's think about the birth of Samuel. Uh, Samuel's mother was a woman named Hannah. Her husband's name was Elkanah. Uh, Hannah was past the age of flowering, so to speak. And she didn't have a child. You know, she wanted a child so bad. She went to the high priest and she promised to give her firstborn son, if she could have one, to God, to the service of God. And Eli, he, he realized how sincere this woman was. He prayed to God and he told her that the Lord will help you to conceive and give birth to a child. Oh, they left Jerusalem, they were tickled pink. They arose early in the morning. They worshiped before the Lord. Then they returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. That's an euphemism for coming together. When they got home, he he knew his wife. And the Lord remembered her and her request. And the text goes on to say she conceived and she gave birth to a son. We know that son as Samuel, the final prophet of Israel, one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament. We see here a case where God arranged two conceptions and births. One of them was miraculous. The other one was by providence. God could manipulate the law, the law which did not allow Hannah to conceive a child, God could interfere with a law and cause her to conceive the way women conceive. That's divine providence. You don't see it. You don't know it. But it sure seems like that's what happened. Sennacherib and the Assyrian army threatened Jerusalem oh they'd come through Judea mowed down 46 fortified cities they were a force to be reckoned with and now they were knocking on the door of Jerusalem they were going to destroy that city and the people inside including King Hezekiah they were terrified of what was about to happen and in the event we see both a miracle and providence so let me show you the difference There was a miracle that occurred with the Assyrian army. In Isaiah 37 36, the angel of the Lord went out and he killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. In one night, as they were in their camp, most of them probably asleep, the angel of the Lord, that should be a capital A there, the capital A angel, which of course would be the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel the messenger of God was sent into the camp of the Assyrian army and he struck 185,000 people dead. He didn't use a gun, he didn't use a stick, he didn't use an arrow, he just snuffed their life out and their bodies lay there and their fires continued to burn. If you walked up on it, you'd think there was life in the camp. Imagine 185,000 scattered out over the countryside, and they're all dead. That was a miracle, a miracle of God. He struck that many dead at one time. Think about providence, on the other hand. We take a look at King Sennacherib. Early on in this chapter, the Lord spoke concerning Sennacherib, and he said, Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor something going back something going on in, back in Assyria and he'll return to his own land and then we move forward oh I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own man then we move forward to verse 38 Sennacherib left he returned home just as the Lord said he would And it came to pass, in verse 38, as he was worshiping in the house of his God, that his sons struck him down with a sword. Now, that wasn't a miracle. When he traveled back home, great journey, and he decided to go into the house of worship and worship his own God, which he did, his sons, not the Lord, but his sons came in there, And they killed their daddy. Now the Lord said he was going to do that. And then it happened. There can be little doubt if any at all. That it happened just like the Lord said it would happen. But it happened providentially. God didn't make his sons kill their daddy. But things were in such a state no doubt guided by the divine hand that these boys had come to a point that they believed it was best if their daddy was no longer roaming the earth and they made that a very real possibility in both cases in the same order of events one death was miraculous the other one was providential keep this in mind what God did God can do, right? He hasn't changed. He's the same person he's always been. Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. Unchanging in nature. That means that what God did, God can do. Are you telling me that God could react to the story of 185,000 soldiers if he chose to? Sure, he did. I know he did. I read about it in the scriptures. I read about it in the Chronicles of the Assyrian Empire. Yeah, I know. It happened. Jehovah took the life of 185,000 at one time. And if he wants to do that today, who's going to stop him? He's the same person he was then. And should he choose to do so, it won't be through the hands of a man, but should he choose to do so, what can stop him from doing so? I can see nothing whatsoever. But could he arrange the death of a person providentially through natural law? Might look like a car accident. It might be a a serial killer and you got in the way of him. It Could be an enemy of one of God's children and it's time for that person to stop bothering his son or daughter and he could arrange to take them out of this world if he chose to do so. He did. Why couldn't he do the same thing today? I can't think of a single reason. God is the most wonderful, fabulous character I've ever tried to understand. The study of providence involves at least three things, providence and nature. As I said a moment ago, Jesus Christ keeps the world spinning around. It's not love, or it could be love of God, but he keeps things happening. That's why we don't flot off into deep space. That's why the planets don't crash into each other. He keeps things keeping on, so to speak. Secondly, we have providence in the nations. The Lord said he, re- he rules over the nations. I could, I could go through a lot of examples. Time isn't going to let me do it, so we can't. But he rules over the nations. He can raise a king. He can drop a king. He can raise a president. He can lower a president. And somebody says, well, he does do a very good job at raising a president. Well, sometimes maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need hard times better than good times. Maybe it'll bring us down a notch, who knows? God knows, and he does accordingly. Then finally, special providence, that is when he interferes in our lives. Working, of course, through the laws that he's instituted. By special providence, what I mean is, first, the Lord works in the lives of those who are seeking the truth. Secondly, the Lord works in the interest of his people. Two different groups where you see providence, special providence and Boyd And that's these two groups of people. Some are not even Christians and God works in their lives providentially. The other group are the children he has whom he said I will never leave nor forsake and we can say the Lord is my helper. He said I'll be with you all the time. Let's think about them very briefly and we'll conclude this lesson. Remember the Ethiopian nobleman, been to Jerusalem to worship, headed back down to Ethiopia? He was the treasurer for Queen Candace of Ethiopia. He was on the way back home and I would suppose he had heard about Jesus, maybe he had seen Jesus during the time of the Passover. And he got to thinking about this man of whom it was predicted that he would come into the world. And he knew the prophets very well, so he started to reason Isaiah chapter 53. He was looking for an answer to the question, could Jesus be the Messiah or not? The Lord knew what he was doing, he knew what he was looking for. He knew what he wanted to do, he wanted to obey God. That's all he had on his mind, he wanted to obey God. And he was searching for the truth to the very best of his own ability. But he was extremely limited. So the Lord had Philip, one of his disciples, to go down and on the road to Gaza. He wanted him to go down and overcome this man's chariot. And Philip did. When Philip got there, he heard him reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip asked, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And then Philip got up in there and told him the whole story. A little bit down the road, he wanted to be baptized into Christ, and he was. The Lord knew that man was going home. He knew he was looking for the truth. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to obey the truth from the very bottom of his heart. He wanted so very badly for God to be proud of him. The Lord knew that, so he sent Philip to him so he could explain to him what he needed to know and do. That's special providence, the Lord working in the life of an unbeliever. Secondly, the Lord knows the heart of all people, even before we do. We have a very good example in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Notice the record. Now, when Paul and Barnabas, when they had gone through Pergia and the region of Galatia, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Wow, that sounds weird, doesn't it? They're gonna go into Asia and they're gonna preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit said, whoa, whoa, not Asia. You can't go there. They were supposed to preach the gospel to the whole creation and now they're being stopped from going into Asia. How can this be, they must wonder. So they changed course. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. (laughs) Here they hit another roadblock. You can't go into Asia, you can't go into Bithynia. And Paul's got to be wondering, what is going on? I've never been stopped before from going anywhere. Well, the record continues, and it says, So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, Seaco city, uh, just across from Europe. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Why? We concluded that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Question. Why did the Holy Spirit say, not Asia, not Bithynia, but you can go to Macedonia? Why would the Lord make such an arbitrary-seeming decision? Or did he? Could it be the case that he knew that the people in Asia were not going to receive the gospel? He knew the people in Bithynia would not receive the gospel, but he knew that the people in Asia, or Europe rather, over in Macedonia, he knew they would receive the gospel. Could it be God said, no, no, go? Because he knew what was going to happen when his disciples got there. He knew who would listen to him and not. And why waste valuable, precious time on people who aren't going to obey the gospel in the first place? If that's not the reason, I can't think of another possible reason why the Lord would have made such a seemingly arbitrary decision. Secondly, the Lord works in the interest of you and me. And that's good. There are some people who want to obey the gospel When you look at them, you don't know who they are. We can't tell the difference. Everybody looks the same. Which person deep in their heart wants to obey the gospel? Which person deep in their heart wants nothing to do with the gospel? I don't know. So we do like a farmer. We take the seed, we throw it out there, and it lands where it will land. And hopefully some of that seed will fall on good ground. That's the way you and I sow seed. God, on the other hand, he can be very specific. He can use a rifle instead of a shotgun because he knows who's who. Watch him. Paul, for example, wanted to go to the city of Rome. He had made three missionary tours. When he was in Corinth, he wrote them a letter and he said, boy, I really want to come to Rome. I pray to God often to come to Rome. Please pray for me that I might be able to come to Rome. He said, my plan is hopefully after I deliver this money to Jerusalem, Judea, Hopefully, after I finish my mission, I will be able to come to you in Rome. That's the plan Paul had. Well, it didn't work out exactly the way he wanted it to work. First of all, when he got to Jerusalem, he was arrested for defiling the temple. Acts chapter 21, verse 28. Did he defile the temple? No, but they accused him of it, and they arrested him. In Acts 23 and 11, the following night, not after being arrested, The Lord stood by Paul and he said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Remember? Paul wanted to go to Rome. He prayed to go to Rome, and now he's arrested in Jerusalem, and more than likely they're going to kill him. They'll probably crucify him. And God said, Don't worry about it, Paul. I'm going to get you to Rome. So Paul didn't have to fear death in Jerusalem. He trusted God would take him to Rome, and I guess he got peace. (laughs) To keep the Jews from murdering Paul, the Roman officials sent him to Caesarea by night, Acts 23, verse 31. The Jews got together. They wanted to kill him. They had to kill Paul. I mean, he was the ringleader. He had to die, and they were going to get a group of people together, and they were going to take advantage of the situation, and they were going to put Paul to death. Well, the Romans got wind of what was going on. And they decided they needed to do something quickly. And they did that very night. They took Paul and they went down to Caesarea. And there they was going to imprison and keep him until he could be tried. He was imprisoned there for two years. He didn't plan on that. He didn't plan on being arrested in Jerusalem. He didn't plan on going to Caesarea. And he certainly didn't plan on being in prison for two years. He thought he was going to get to go to Rome. But he couldn't go to Rome because now everything was interfering with him. Paul appealed to Caesar. The Romans decided that they were going to allow the Jews to judge him. Oh, no. That's certain death, and Paul knew it. But the Romans are politicians, and they want to make friends with the Jews, so they work out this deal. We're going to set it up where you can, you can try and judge the man, and he'll be treated accordingly. There's only one thing Paul could do. He was a Roman citizen, and that gave him the right to appeal to Caesar. Caesar. Nobody could judge Paul now except for Caesar. And every Roman citizen had that right. And when they appealed to Caesar, all trials stopped. He didn't want to appeal to Caesar, but he believed that was the only way he could get around the circumstances. He boarded a ship for Rome, Acts 27.1. This was in about August of 60 AD. He got on the ship, headed for Rome. Finally, he's gonna get to Rome. Well, he's going to be a prisoner. He's going to be in jail. He's got to appeal before Caesar. But he's going to get to Rome. And that's what he'd been praying for until there was a shipwreck and all hope was lost. They were all going to die at sea. In the next 27 to verse 30, the angel of the Lord said, You must stand before Caesar. Verse 24. You're not going to die here in the water. You're going to Rome, and you're going to appear before Caesar. So Paul, once again, found some comfort that he must have needed very badly. The following spring, Paul arrived at Rome. This is 61 A.D., Acts 28, 16. Finally, he was walking on the streets of Rome. The apostle later wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 12. He was a prisoner in Rome at the time he wrote the Philippian letter. And here's what he had to say. The things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It looked like everything that could go wrong went wrong in Paul's life. And Paul said, God gave me the opportunity to preach the gospel in Rome. Not the way he planned But it was the way God planned. And Paul rejoiced. I got more to say, but I'm out of time. The Lord, for those who believe and trust God, and I'm going to tell you something. There is so much studying that can be done on the same subject. So, so much information. Because this is the stuff faith is made out of. For those who can trust the Lord, patiently wait for him to do whatever it is he's going to do. They shall be delivered, be lifted up on the wings of eagles, and ultimately fly away into God's paradise. Believing that, though, that can be very hard. Some people have been Christians for a very long time and they can't believe. For some, I suppose, they've missed the window of opportunity. It'll never open again. But for those of us who are still striving to walk with the Lord, we may not understand, but we can trust, continue to learn Continue to grow in faith until at last we make it to heaven. That's why we're here. That's why we meet every week. That's why we live. By the grace of God, we're receiving an opportunity to put our time to good use and get to know our Father as our most loving benefactor and reap the reward of faith, ultimately. If you're not a Christian, you were put on this earth to become one, to get to know God, receive him as your Father, and treat him accordingly. As Christians, the race isn't over, We're just in the middle of it. We are not to fall by the wayside. We are not to give up. We are to keep pressing forward always. Sometimes it's very hard to do, but we can do it if we press together. If you need God's forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, I beg you from the very bottom of my heart, don't waste your life. Don't waste the life of the people you know. Embrace the Lord today.